This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like the series on privacy, property, and free speech, law and the Constitution in the 21st century. Get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Hi, and welcome to Amicus Slate Supreme Court Podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the Supreme Court correspondent for Slate Magazine. Now, it is no understatement to say that we are rolling into the mega term at the Supreme Court. In very, very short order, we're going to hear cases about marriage equality, the future of the Affordable Care Act, and possibly how the death penalty is administered. And it's going to be nutty. But we thought before we handled those big cases, while the court is taking a breath, we'd take one too and ask a more existential question. Why is it that we can listen to audio from the Supreme Court, but we can't watch it? Why are there no cameras allowed in the court? And to help think through this question of cameras in the court, we bring you two of the great scholars on First Amendment law and the court, Sonia West from the University of Georgia, Ronell Anderson-Jones from Brigham Young University, both of whom are scholars in the field of the First Amendment. Sonia and Ronell, welcome to Amicus. Hi, Dahlia. Thanks for having us. So I guess I want to ask this first question to both of you because you both clerked for justices at the Supreme Court and you know what oral argument looks like. Uh, Sonia West, could you tell us if you were hypothetically a listener to Amicus, who lives in, say, Kenosha, and wanted to come to oral argument in the marriage equality cases, what your chances are of having a seat for the entirety of that argument on that day? Well, your chances are not good, frankly. Uh, The Supreme Court the courtroom itself can seat about 300 people, but a large number of those seats are already reserved for members of the press, members of the Supreme Court bar, the clerks, the, the, the guests of the justice. So that leaves an even more limited number of seats for just members of the public. And what we've seen in recent years for high-profile cases like the, the same-sex marriage cases or the Affordable Care Act case is that lines have started forming um, to get those 
you know, few seats that are remaining available for the public. Often days before the argument itself, people camp out in line. If you are a person from, what'd you say, Kenosha of mm-hmm. means, um, then you might be one of the people, which we've also seen the trend of later, who pays someone to stand in line for them outside the Supreme Court. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you would have to get in line extremely, extremely, extremely early. And um, even then, your chances are not extremely good at getting in. And Ronell, I wonder if you could tell us, because I've always wondered this, uh, the Friends of the Justice list, how many justices, do they each get to invite 20 people to? No, it's, it's a, I, my sense is that it's a much smaller list than that. I, I, I think it's probably something more like five or possibly 10. And if um, the retired justice for whom I work, I clerked for Justice O'Connor, and I have... Um, on one a singular occasion uh, sought a ticket a, a ticket see we call it a ticket because it's such a prize to get in the door and the idea is that if you don't make the call the moment that the oral argument calendar is announced there's a decent chance that those will already have been given away so so long story short you probably could go to the Willy Wonka golden ticket in the chocolate bar odds uh, and that would be about equivalent to getting a seat for oral argument in the new Affordable Care Act cases? Certainly, if we compare the number of people in the country who have an interest in that case with the number of seats that are readily available, um, the odds are staggeringly low, yes. And it's probably worth saying before we really start talking about cameras in the court, and I want to turn to you on this, Sonia West, uh, there has been photography inside the court. Uh, You've written about it, but interestingly, there's actually been quite a lot of photography inside the court just in recent years. Could you give us a quick history of pictures of the Supreme Court in action during oral argument? Um, Sure. So the court has never allowed, never permitted there to be any kind of visual photograph or video taken of them while they are in session. But we've had a couple of instances of rogue photographers finding their way in. And two of them were a number of years ago in the the 30s, uh, where we had two photographers who snuck a camera into the courtroom. Uh, One of them was a photographer who pretended he had a broken arm and he put his, his camera in the sling of his arm and managed to shoot a a photo of the justices on the bench. And the other one uh, was a photo that appeared in Time magazine, uh, and they did not tell us who the photographer was. She was just described as, I think it's something like an an enterprising young woman or something like that. And she had uh, cut a hole in her purse and put some sort of jewel around it to make it look like a decoration where the lens would poke out of the hole in her purse. And she carried that into the Supreme Court and managed to snap an actually quite well-framed, um, um, interesting uh, picture, again, of the justices on the bench. So those are the first two that we were managed to unearth of these secret uh, photographs of the court actually in session. And then, and then we really have nothing that we know of for decades and decades. But recently, that has begun to change because we've now had two instances in the recent uh, couple of years of uh, people sneaking video cameras into the court and taking uh, video um, of the court that's quite um, grainy and, and, and difficult to see much, but it, nonetheless, it's video of the court in session. And it's worth flagging that one of those happened just last week. Uh, we talked about it on the show. There were protesters who were protesting the anniversary of Citizens United. And the next thing we know, they released, uh, I guess you could call it a video. It seems to be kind of... <laughs> 
kind of uh, to keep on the movie theme, Titanic E. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> lots of grainy photography, chiefly of the roof uh, of the building. But <laughs> there is video now, twice in a couple of years, of the Supreme Court from the interior, all the action and all the drama. Renell, do you suspect? I, I always wonder: Is this going to make more and more people sneak in their secret camera pens and their secret camera glasses, or is this going to get boring at some point? Uh, well. I mean, part of this goes to the question of how the court wants to be depicted and what the realities are of um, video technology today. Back when these conversations about having cameras in the courtroom were first initiated, they were conversations about large pieces of equipment coming in, um, staring at the justices as they did their work. And now they are questions about any person with a cell phone or any person with a recording device that could be very, very small. And what it means is that we are seeing the court <laughs> through the lens of a camera. It's just through this um, spy technology and subterfuge rather than um, through the court's own cooperation with it. And I do think it is notable that the times that we've just spoken of, the most recent incidents, the cameras came in not just because someone was curious or because someone was interested or because someone um, felt strongly that there was a democratic reason for the court's oral argument calendar uh, to be on camera, but rather as a part of a protest. People wanted to capture the kerfluffle that they themselves had created in the courtroom. And I think that incentive is unlikely to go away. I think the absence of the cameras in the courtroom will mean that people who are creating a ruckus in the courtroom will likely bring a camera with them and try to record it. Uh, which makes it too bad that Sky Mall is folding, right? They didn't just <laughs> declare bankruptcy. I felt like anything you needed to tape the Supreme Court yeah. is now. We're going to have to go back to pretending we have broken arms, <laughs> exactly, and fancy purses or fabulous purses. <laughs> so let's 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 be fair here. Um, on the one hand, it's really important to stipulate that the U.S. Supreme Court is the most transparent branch of government, and they say that all the time. They say, "Look, you know, everything is available online. Uh, you can get transcripts the same day of oral argument." Uh, audio is available at the end of the week. Heck, we use it all the time here on the show. Chief Justice John Roberts famously said in 2011, everything that we do that has an impact is done in public, end quote. So why are we carping about television, Sonia? I mean, aren't they being more open than any other branch of government already? Right. So on one hand, there is this argument, sure, that, that you know, we don't get these hundred page explanations from Congress about why they made this exact decision that they made or what they did and that whereas the court lays it all out there for us. This is this is what we thought, this is who disagreed, this is why they disagreed. We get to follow that whole uh, decision making um, process. And clearly what we are talking about is access to one part of the process, to oral arguments. No one's arguing that we should get cameras inside the justices conference or inside their chambers, right? So but they have uh, this one point um, where they do come out and do this very public mid process discussion of uh, these cases. It is open to the public. There is the press there. There are members of the public, just not very many, as we talked about before. And by not allowing cameras, we're not including 
the rest of America in this one aspect of the court's decision-making uh, process. And and sure, we can read the transcripts. Uh, sure, we could listen to the audio. We can read the news reports about what happened at uh, the oral argument. But I think it would be hard for anyone to really deny that there is something different about seeing and hearing for yourself what happened in that courtroom about these issues that have national implications. You can see sort of how you could, you know, how the justices asked the question, what was their tone? Um, um, what kind of facial expressions did they have? How did the other justices react when that question was asked? What did the lawyer do? You can't get any of that from the transcript. You don't get to sort of follow the whole, you know, three-dimensional vision of what exactly is happening. And it's also sort of just honestly to say that there's not very many people who do read the transcripts of the oral arguments, but television people would watch. We would reach a lot more people. A lot more people would tune in and be interested to being able to see this video of what it was that their Supreme Court was doing. So I thought that it would be incredibly fair and level the playing field to pit you guys against the justices themselves. (laughs) Um, So I want to offer up each of the arguments that the justices have advanced. And I think it's really important to flag here that this transcends ideological lines. It transcends generational lines. The justices pretty universally all hate the idea of cameras. And one of the reasons that they proffer, and I want you to respond to this, uh, Ronell, is that it leads to, if you were to introduce cameras in there, it would lead to grandstanding and everybody would get all crazy. So here's Chief Justice uh, John Roberts in 2011 talking about what would happen if we rolled cameras into the courts. Cameras present all sorts of challenges that these other uh, uh, areas uh, don't. Um, we worry about the impact on lawyers. I worry about the impact on, uh, on judges. Uh, I do think the considerations at the Supreme Court are different in many respects from the considerations. Uh, you think judges will ask even more questions? I which? do. Uh, that's exactly... Uh, <laughs> it's exactly, we unfortunately fall into uh, uh, grandstanding with, you know, a couple hundred people in the courtroom. Uh, I'm I concerned about what the impact uh, would be. Um, we talk about it from time to time. It's, it's something we consider. Other courts around the country have had uh, the experience with it. Uh, the Supreme Court is different, not only domestically, but in terms of its impact worldwide. I'll be very interested to see what the results of the pilot program in the lower courts look like. I'm sure we'll take those into account in considering whether we need to move, move forward. But, you know, movement will be gradual. Uh, that's the nature of the, the court. Okay, so Ronell, uh, talk to us about uh, grandstanding justices. So I, I guess I think that that argument cuts in a couple of different directions. Um, On the one hand, we hear the justices of the Supreme Court arguing that there ought not be cameras in the courtroom because it is a place of decorum. And and a lot of the arguments that we're going to hear are uh, arguments that are rooted in tradition. Um, This is the way that we've always done it. I mean, this is an institution that still gives out quill pens to the lawyers who argue before it. Um, Many generations after such a pen would be of any value besides its (laughs) traditional and historic throwback. 
And so we have this notion that uh, we're preserving our historical decorum. And then we hear the justices suggesting that they themselves cannot be trusted not to violate those notions of decorum if they think that more people are looking at them. I I guess I think more highly of the justices than that. Uh, The time that I spent there as a law clerk and the time um, that I've spent there in practice um, when I uh, worked for an appellate firm uh, that, that worked before the court, I think the justices take their work seriously. I think um, that oral argument is a place of decorum, uh, that it is a respectful place. I think there already is a little bit of friendly banter. Um, Some personality of the justices shines through uh, in oral argument, and that gets reported. And I think um, it seems to me unlikely that the presence of cameras would necessarily uh, lead to a sort of wild entertainmentification of the court, I think the justices themselves are better than that. I also think that the pilot programs that were referenced in that clip have demonstrated to the contrary. Sonia, I want to play for you, Anthony Kennedy, in 2008. Uh, This is him testifying. The justices routinely testify on this issue. So here he is in 2008 making the same point about grandstanding and generally weird real housewife type behavior. Our dynamic works. Uh, the discussions that the judges, justices have with the attorneys during oral argument is a splendid dynamic. Mm -hmm. If you introduce cameras, it is human nature for me to suspect from time to time that one of my colleagues is saying something for a soundbite. Please don't introduce that insidious dynamic into what is now a collegial court. Our court works. We teach by having no cameras, that we are different. We are judged by what we write. We are judged over a much longer term. We're not judged by what we say. Now, if you want to have an Oxford debate, and I drew the affirmative for cameras in the courtroom, I could make a lot of points about educating the public, about educating our attorneys. Some, some attorneys would profit greatly from watching oral arguments in order to make their own better. So, so there, there are good reasons for it. But all in all, I I think it would destroy a dynamic uh, that is now really quite a splendid one, and and I don't think we should take that chance. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Rennell that all the other courts, and of which there are many, all 50 states have cameras in their courts in some way. The uh, the, the Supreme Court of Canada has had it in for decades. Um, and just evidence after evidence has not found this to be a problem. Uh, the, the evidence strongly shows that there might be sort of an initial getting used to the cameras period. And then after that, uh, the, the participants, both the judges and the lawyers, forget about them and go about about uh, their business. But I'd also add at the Supreme Court, if anybody who actually has managed to get one of those golden tickets to be at the at a Supreme Court argument. It is a big deal. Uh, it is taken very seriously. It is a large room filled with hundreds of people. There is nobody who is under the delusion that something monumental isn't happening here. And that includes the justices. That includes uh, the lawyers. I mean, so if, if you had an instinct, I mean, I'll say, you know, grandstanders are going to grandstand, right? I mean, if you had an instinct to be somebody who was going to give a speech, you would do it then anyway. You had quite an audience. 
audience. And, 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 you know, some would argue we do occasionally get, we have a very hot bench these days and that some of the justices do take to, to sort of trying to make a, a broader point to the broader audience rather than engage with the, with the attorneys. Um, but they're, they're going to do that now in under that um, situation. And there's just no reason that we've seen in all of the other experiments with cameras to think that cameras would significantly change that. And I probably would add here that I always feel that for the justices themselves, if there's a moment that they don't want sealed in amber for all time, it's the video of their confirmation hearings where they're saying, I don't know, I can't remember, I don't know, I never said that, I don't know, I don't know, next question, which is not always them at their finest. Uh, and that it is a deeply strange proposition that we film the interview uh, and not the job performance because on the bench, they're really quite astounding. Right. And and that's maybe a good segue to our next clip, which has to do with uh, the justices' fears for their security. What what they claim is, look, you know, I want to go to Safeway and I want to, you know, squeeze the cabbages. And they don't want people to jump up behind them and say, hey, I really uh, hated uh, your vote in that abortion case. So here's Clarence Thomas. In 2008, he was actually sitting next to Justice Kennedy, uh, I believe, when he testified that really his concern is that if they become like the real housewives of Washington, D.C., they will really, really be in uh, physical peril. The primary point for me uh, in the camera in the courtroom issue has been that regular appearances on TV would mean significant changes in uh, the way my colleagues could conduct their lives. My anonymity is already gone. So it's already affected the way that I can uh, uh, conduct my own life. But for some of my colleagues, they have not yet lost that anonymity. So I think that the security issues are at the foremost of all of our minds now uh, since 9-11. I think they would certainly uh, um, become even more significant with more exposure. Sonia West, I wonder if you, as a professor from Georgia, might speak to the concerns of the justice from Georgia? (laughs) Right. You know, the issue of of saying if, you know, if there's video, um, suddenly more people will know who we are and our um, security will be compromised. That's really a matter of degree because, of course, they're already very public people. Uh, their photographs are out there. They all uh, are of uh, the age of that their confirmation hearings, which were many days long, uh, were televised. Uh, they didn't seem to raise uh, the concern then that they wouldn't go before a televised confirmation hearing when they were getting the job. Uh, most of the justices on the bench do a variety of public appearances, um, some more than others, but most of them do a certain amount where they, they go to school they go to different places, they give speeches, they're around. Often they have books that they are trying to sell and they will choose to give interviews. So it seems a little bit selective uh, to say, but we don't want to have cameras showing us doing our important work on the bench, again, already in a public forum. So they're not exactly being hidden here uh, because that would compromise um, our security when they seem to embrace all these other aspects of the job, which is indeed a very public job. So I have not seen any evidence strongly saying that this would be the tipping point that would put their security uh, suddenly um, at risk. So I think um, it's a little hard to get too concerned about exactly where this line is and to be confident that the line of secure or not secure is video and oral argument. 
I feel like the security arguments are the ones that um, hit me hard, right? Because I think that security concerns pose an interesting dilemma. In recent years, I think several federal judges have been physically attacked or harmed, and justices of the court have been among them. Um, Justice Breyer was robbed two times in 2012, one of which was at Machete Point in his vacation home in the Caribbean. Um, Justices Souter and Ginsburg reported death threats. Um, Justice White, um, when he was on the court, was attacked while giving a speech. The the year that I um, was a law clerk, Justice Souter was brutally jumped um, by a group of thugs and attacked while he was out jogging along the Potomac. All of us as law clerks were sort of murmuring about it when word came back to the court and saying, you know, um, speculating as to whether it was somebody who was upset about a particular opinion or that opinion or his role in abortion jurisprudence. And it turned out that it was just some thugs who were, they thought that they were attacking an elderly man who was out jogging and didn't know that they were attacking a justice of the United States Supreme Court. And I guess it's at least arguable in my mind that the justices might be safer from random acts of violence if they were widely recognized as members of the highest court in the land. So I think even if the presence of cameras in oral arguments, even if we came to a conclusion that that might necessitate greater security protection for the justices, I just think that that greater protection might already be long overdue. Um, Unless the justices are traveling on business as justices, they actually have little or no security protection. When Justice Breyer was robbed on his vacation in the Caribbean, the intruders basically just walked right through the front door. And so I think um, these are two separate issues that we should be talking about, but I'm not sure that the fact that there is an arguable problem in the level of security that the justices enjoy correlates to the question of whether cameras should or should not be there. We're going to hit pause for one quick second because we're very excited. We have a sponsor here at Amicus this week, and we're really excited to tell you about The Great Courses, which is a company that uh, brings you courses in hundreds of subjects that you have maybe not a huge amount of knowledge but want to learn more. So if you are listening to Amicus today because you are intrigued by the law and the Constitution and the courts and you want to learn a little bit more about it, the motivation behind the great courses is to teach you a lot more. And it includes subjects taught by fantastic professors that range from history to language to photography in all sorts of different audio and video formats. One quick example of a Great Courses series that I think listeners to this podcast will love is Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century, taught by Jeff Rosen, who teaches at George Washington Law School and truly is a preeminent thinker in the areas of the Constitution, privacy, the law, free speech, all the sorts of things that bring you to this show. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for any listener to this podcast. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Jeff Rosen's Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, and you can get it at up to 80% of the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash A-M-I-C-U-S and order now. And now we'd like to pick up our discussion on Cameras in the Court. So, so we've talked about how the justices don't trust themselves to not act weird. And we've talked about the fact that they don't trust the hooligans to not jump on them. And the third piece of the trifecta is that they don't entirely trust uh, the people who are going to watch them to understand what the court is doing. So this is actually a, an argument that is advanced fairly often. But here's a, a really outstanding version of this argument by Justice Antonin Scalia in 2005. Let, let's talk for a, a minute 
minute or so about televising hearings of the Supreme Court. Ooh. <laughs> um, other courts do permit television. Why not the Supreme Court? Justice Scalia? You know, when I first came on the court, I, I, was, I was in favor of it. Uh, I have uh, long since changed my view on that. Uh, those who want to do it say that they want to educate the American people. Now, if I really thought that it would educate the American people, I would be in favor of it. And indeed, if the American people watched our proceedings from gavel to gavel, they would be educated. They would, they would come to realize that although, you know, now and then we, we do these sexy cases, should there be a right to abortion? Should there be a right to suicide? Should there be a right to this or that? Most of the time, we are not contemplating our navel. We are not uh, engaging in this broad philosophical, ethical uh, search. Most of the time, we are doing real law. We're doing the Internal Revenue Code, the Bankruptcy Code, ERISA. Really dull stuff. <laughs> and nobody would ever again come up to me and say, Justice Scalia, why do you have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? Because they think what we're doing is, uh, you know, looking up at the sky and saying, should this right or that right exist? Well, they can, they can guess that as well as I can. Now, the problem is, for every person who watches us from gavel to gavel, there will be 10,000 who will watch a 15 or 30 second takeout on the nightly news, mm -hmm. and I guarantee you that will not be characteristic of what we do. It will be man bites dog. So why should I uh, participate in the miseducation of the American people? Uh, and and we, we like to think of that as the John Stewart argument, but lest you think uh, only Justice Scalia has articulated it, here's Justice Breyer from 2010 making, in effect, the same point. There's some concern about what, I mean, we have a, a group of people in our press room who know how the court works. And when you read what they say, you know it's being written about by someone who knows how the court works. Now, that isn't always so. The cameras don't always have the time. And will there be misperception given? Sonia West, I wonder if you could speak to this question of people are going to misperceive what the court does and they're going to get wacky, crazy ideas if they watch oral argument. Yeah, so this has become the new popular thing for the justices to say when they're asked about this question, which they are asked about it all the time, everywhere that they go. And this whole idea of, and it drives me crazy, I'll have to admit, this is, of all the answers, this is the one I find sort of most difficult to grasp, because it, the, basically what all of these justices have argued, and Justice Sotomayor has been recently arguing this, and all, many of the justices have been saying is that people just aren't going to understand what it is that they're looking at. They won't understand that oral argument is just part of the process and that we have, you know, briefing and, and conference and drafting and all these other things that are part of the process too, or they won't understand that we have to think about the implications for our decision um, and how it might, you know, affect enormous numbers of people or for future cases. And so it could look like uh, we're just being mean to the particular petitioners in this case, or they won't understand we might ask a question, but we're playing devil's advocate 
advocate. They won't get that. And frankly, I, I find all of this, one, to be sort of uh, nonsensical because, of course, already that is what we see and hear about, well, not see, but hear about the court, you know, through press coverage of oral argument all the time. This is, you know, we understand that there's an oral argument and that it's in the middle of the process and the justices ask questions and we read stories in the you know, online or in the newspaper or we listen to the radio or watch our, our, our TV coverage of it and they explain this justice asked this question and this justice asked that question and the sky doesn't seem to be falling, that everyone's getting all confused and upset by what they're hearing about these reports about what happened at uh, oral arguments. So I think the argument itself simply just doesn't hold any water. But the second problem I have with it is to me it seems very elitist. So the only thing that could explain it to me as a reason to keep out video is the concept that sure it's one thing for the people who read the coverage in the newspaper or listen to NPR uh, or follow Dahlia Lithwick on Slate to read about oral argument. Those people will understand where this process is, but video will reach a whole different type of person who can't understand what's going on and can't understand the process because that's the only way I can make sense of that argument since we already all hear reports about oral argument. Um, and, and so I find it very um, um, upsetting. And, 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 but yet, at the same time, it's become the most popular response to this question recently. But it does resonate a little uh, that there is something different about the broadcast snippet in part because whatever it is that's goofy or um, uh, irreverent or um, foolish uh, or embarrassing is coming right out of the mouth of the individual justice or I guess attorney, um, Linda Greenhouse, who for many, many years uh, was the person who was covering the court for um, the New York Times. She has recently asserted that she thinks that one of the major setbacks of the last couple of years on the road towards getting cameras in the courtroom was this episode that happened uh, when the Solicitor General was arguing the Affordable Care Act argument on behalf of the administration and choked a little bit while taking sort of a you know, bad sip of water as he got up to the podium to start his argument on behalf of the Obama administration. And that little audio snippet, right, there isn't um, a release of any video, obviously, but the audio is released at the end of the week. And that audio snippet um, became a part of some Republican ads on the radio and um, various, you know, internet ads with some little message, the gist of which was, right, they're choking over this argument, too. In her view, right, that set us back um, a whole generation in terms of being able to make arguments for having cameras there. And I think it resonates with me that people are worried about only the funniest part or only the part um, that w- could be put to political gain or only the part um, where the justice uh, committed some major gaffe making its way. This is why it's the John Stewart argument making its way onto TV or the Internet or elsewhere. But I also think that what that means is that they would prefer not to be embarrassed, right? That is surely a good explanation for why the justices want to keep cameras out. But I have a harder time getting to a place where um, it explains why they should be kept out. 
It's probably worth flagging here that there is ultimately the lingering David Souter argument against cameras in the court. That was in 1996. He famously, <laughs> the dead body. <laughs> the dead body. He famously testified in 1996 to the House Appropriation Committee, quote, the day you see a camera come into our courtroom, it's going to roll over my dead body, end quote. Uh, it's worth saying that even after he left the court, you still hear justices say, boy, we do it out of regard for David Souter. And it is really... Really, really interesting. I think as often as you hear uh, what Sonia's characterizing as the snippets uh, argument, you know, people won't understand. There's the we we are a collegial court, and as long as anyone feels bad about this, uh, we all feel bad about this, and that seems yeah. to me to have outlived even David Souter's uh, dead body argument. Uh, from 1996. One wonders whether that is the explanation for what seems to be a pretty stark about face for a lot of recent appointees to the court in terms of the position that they take on this in confirmation proceedings or before uh, being appointed to the court and then a pretty swift backpedaling after um, they are on the bench. I think it may well be explained by that, that there is this very close relationship between and among the nine justices, even though they disagree vehemently and come from uh, opposite sides of the ideological spectrum, they um, share in common with each other something that no one else can share, that sort of position and the lifestyle and the complexities and the weight of the job. And I do think that the new folks get there and the the weight of opinion is so heavily against it from their peers that they feel that the respectful thing to do is to take on that position as well. Last word on that? You know, I think possibly that they do it out of respect for their colleagues, because you're right, there has been a trend of nominees expressing support for this. And then after they become justices, they sort of have a change of heart about it. I will say, and and, and this is something I, I mean, with all due respect, I mean, I, I think it's understandable in a way that I think also they get on the courts and the justices feel this great obligation to this institution of which they are a part of, and that has persevered and which played such an important role in our country, in our country's history, and in our law, and they don't want to be the one that messed it all up. And even if they might think cameras would be okay, it might not be. And they're, you know, hesitant to be the ones who who let in uh, the cameras and, and, you know, hurt and destroyed or chipped away at this revered institution of which they feel that they are a temporary partial sort of keeper of. And and I understand that and respect that. Um, I I disagree with it, but I, I think I can understand at least there that they feel the sense of obligation and, and the, the unknown of video is concerning to them in that way. And I think on that note, I want to thank uh, Renell Anderson-Jones, who teaches First Amendment law at Brigham Young University, and Sonia West, who teaches First Amendment law at the University of Georgia. Thank you both so much for joining us on Amicus. It was Thanks. great to be here. Thank you. It was fun. And that's it for this episode of Amicus. But before we sign off, we want to ask for a small favor of each of you. The Slate Podcast team has a new effort underway to understand a little bit more about our listeners. So please consider taking a few minutes to complete a survey we've put together about which podcasts you enjoy, how often you listen to them, and how you find out about new podcasts. It will help us continue to make great podcasts about the things that you love and things you didn't even know you love. Go to slate.com slash survey or look for the link in the show notes for this episode. Thanks. 
Thanks also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick. And we will be back again with you next week with another episode of Amicus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.